Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. With me as ever is Dr. David Gushy. How are you this morning, David? I'm pretty good, Jeremy. How about you? Hanging in there. It's uh, We're recording today on the 19th. Tomorrow is the last day that I have uh, the kids in preschool for the rest of the year, so a little anxious about that, but it's all good. So you'll have them. It's holidays starting tomorrow, huh? Yes. So they're going to meet some new babysitters. And <laughs> uh, and today we are still having our ongoing conversation about the Defending Democracy from its Christian Enemies book. Interestingly, towards the, the end, the last couple movements you make are Christian moves. So we've been defending democracy from its Christian enemies. And now we want to talk about the Baptists. What's going on? Because all Baptists um, are Southern Baptists, and what do they have to say about politics that's useful or helpful or government or society? They're just mean old Baptists. That's so wrong, Jeremy, and you know that that's wrong, so that's why we're going to fix that, right? As a Baptist um, pastor, that makes me happy. So, I'm pretty excited about this last move in the, in the book. Um, so, a way to think about the structure of the book is... Um, thinking about what is democracy, uh, thinking about all the various threats and alternatives to democracy. Um, and then there's all those country studies that we did going country by country and seeing authoritarian, reactionary Christian politics surfacing in all these different places. Well, just this past week, it, if you've read this book or listened to this podcast, you are more equipped to handle the news of this past week. There were intersections between... Hungary, Brazil, Russia, and the Trump campaign. You know, I didn't see that, but of course, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, they're um, all referencing each other. Uh, mm-hmm. Trump's been talking about Putin's leadership. He's been talking about Obram and wanting to be like him and emulating <laughs> uh, the social movement that's happened in Brazil. That, uh, that's true. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't bear to even read the news stories about what he's saying on the campaign trail. So sometimes... Sometimes I miss those. We also had our our eleven month old granddaughter with us for a week, so I was um, <laughs> I was doing something much more important and pleasant, I think. Yes. Um, but anyway, and so in the last three chapters of the book, I want to say um, Christianity has not always been authoritarian. <laughs> positioned itself uh, as resolutely committed to democracy, and. Uh, a place to start on telling that story is with the early Baptist tradition beginning in England um, in the 16th, late 16th and early 17th century. Um, and rarely do I ever sound more um, enthused about the Baptist tradition than when writing about this heritage. Uh, and this is also a chance for me to celebrate um, my teacher, Glenn Stassen, who was a committed Baptist, and one reason was because he so valued uh, the the, de- the early democratic um, and human rights traditions of the Baptists. So I open the chapter with this quote. <coughs> the Baptists had insisted that the way Jesus made disciples was by teaching and persuasion, not by coercion. They held that the government has no competence in religion, and when it seeks to enforce faith, it creates wars of religion and hypocrites who claim a faith they do not actually hold. 
following a thicker Jesus, his formulation, rules out coercion and thus contributes to religious liberty. The sovereignty of God through all of life requires Christian responsibility in every area and thus bestows democracy to society. So there's a lot going on there in what Stassen is arguing. So the Baptists start off in Western Europe as an outsider group. They're a they're not necessarily a resistance movement, but they are an alternative Christian subculture popping up under Christendom. Right. They break from the state church paradigm in England. And then if we see them as emerging from the Puritan movement in England, they are in what's called the free church or independent or radical wing of the Puritan movement. Uh, the Puritans um, were still attempting to Christianize society and to have a state church. They just wanted it to be much more, <laughs> much more rigorous than what the Anglican uh, establishment had managed to do. Well, that's, that's the history of, Christianity in Europe and the Christian wars, right? We we want a state church. We just want it to be our state church and not your state church. And the Baptists and a couple of our cousin traditions play a completely different game. They they try to step outside of of that wheel. Right. Um, I read a book um, just this last month called Accidental Pluralism by a historian named. Uh, uh, Heffley, and he talks about how when the British came to North America, um, we know that the end of the story is a country that ended up going with disestablishment of religion and and religious liberty. But he shows that that um, pretty much everybody who came came believing that the goal was to establish a Christian state just their kind of Christian state. So ended up being the Puritans in New England and the Anglicans in uh, England, I mean, in uh, Virginia mainly, and uh, and so on. But it ended Baptists up, get kicked out. Right, because because they won't cooperate. They won't, um, they won't uh, play that game. Um, so Stassen was able to show that um, that Early modern democracy was an innovation of Christian dissenters, um, and he he uh, acknowledged that the the Puritan movement um, was a, a place to look to see this begin. Um, but then, within all the religious ferment at that period, the Baptists spin off of the Puritans and are even more radical. They wanted churches that were independent of the state and they wanted the state to stop trying to regulate and enforce religious uniformity. And they also, so in other words, they're making early arguments for religious liberty, for human rights protections, for the protection of conscience. Um, but I also argue in the, in the chapter that these both Puritan and um, Baptist churches were already being organized in a much more democratic way from the beginning. This was not a top-down system with the monarch and the bishops and the priests and then the people. These were covenanted communities of believers 
uh, they were and that's learning the name how- radical the radical yeah. in the radical movement is that they sort of f- they're their own thing they're free radicals in a system that was top down monarchical design right so they were learning how to govern themselves in their churches um so what does this sound like um a group of people decide to create a community they write a covenant for that community um and then um they create the community um and then they govern themselves under the terms of the covenant that they themselves have written they elect their own officers and leaders they can um remove people from office um, they set up bylaws uh, and um, and ways of governing themselves. What does that sound like? It sounds like democracy. So congregational churches separated from the state, all they asked of the state was to be left alone. Governing themselves in democratic forms, um, valuing the voices of everybody in the community um this is at least the the stirrings the earliest stirrings of modern democracy in in england and um most scholars i think it's pretty much a consensus would say that that well even just chronologically what the early baptists were saying by the 1640s and 1630s about how they wanted to govern themselves and how, how they thought the state should operate was 50 years ahead of John Locke um, talking about the social contract and um, and the more enlightenment way of describing how where government comes from. So uh, Reinhold Niebuhr says that it's enlightenment influences and Christian influences that give us the kind of democracy we got in the U.S., you have to have both. And the Baptists are at the center of those Christian voices. Did the Baptists, so they didn't want to establish a state church. Did they want to expand their internal governance? To be, Did they think they were doing what they were doing? Did they want the influence that they have in this story of Western and American democracy? That's a good question. Because um, I've not read any of them any of those, all of the John Smiths, John Smith, John Smith, John Smythe, John Hellweiss. Um, there's so many John. The, those history tests were awful. <laughs> but if also, if you didn't know, you could just write John and then kind of a squiggle, and you had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that mainly they were religious believers who were trying to serve Christ in good conscience. And, but you do see with somebody like Richard Overton, who I discussed in this chapter and who was one of Glenn's favorite Baptists, um, there were some pamphlets being written and tracts being written to say, now here's what the government should and should not be doing. So they did have, they did have a vision, some of them at least, for the proper exercise of government power. Um, Like in 1647, Overton wrote um, a document called An Appeal to the Free People, and um, he argued for 
full religious liberty, a wide range of civil liberties, uh, dignity, equal political participation without regard to religious confession. Um, that would be Jewish and Muslim too, not just Christian. Mm -hmm. And agnostic or atheist too. Um, positive economic rights, the right to free education and social insurance. Um, and uh, he was arguing that in 1647. But see, what I want our listeners today to think about is they had a taste for liberty because they had had the bad taste of persecution, imprisonment, sometimes martyrdom for trying to follow their own faith. They in in Europe they never had a majority. They never had the state with them. So like the like the Anabaptists who they were related to, um they spent a fair amount of time in jail or dying for just trying to be who they were. And in my sad observation, people who who remember what it's like to be persecuted or prosecuted for just trying to be who you believe you're supposed to be. They tend to not be very big fans of state church establishments, um, and they don't forget it. But I fear that modern-day Baptists, especially in the South, have lost this heritage or are at risk of losing it. Well, they, they're not the persecuted. They're the persecutors. Right. Um, A little too much power. Yes. Uh, I think I put in this chapter... The uh, yeah, um, the it's the position. The a lot of the story that I tell in the book is frustrated majorities or former majorities wishing to re recover the power that they once had. Um, so it could be Catholics in Poland or Orthodox in. Russia or evangelicals in the South. So the persecuted Baptists, the the pendulum swings for them, and they become a majority in the United States, especially in the South. And as the pendulum starts to swing back away from them as far as influence, they switch from being from they've gone persecuted democratic to reactionary as they try to grab onto that power as it feels like it's drifting away. That's my argument, um, that a persecuted people is was just demanding to be left alone. Right? Let us organize our churches and not have to go to jail, not have our pastors go to jail because they're not under Anglican bishops or something. Right? Um, and then they're instrumental in the birth of the kind of democracy that was born here with religious disestablishment. There is not a state church in the U.S. That was a decision. And there's more and more evidence that a number of Christians would like to reverse that decision now. They'd like it to be a state church. They'd like it to be their state church. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but democracy... I can now see the kind of, you might say, the contingency of the conditions that gave us 1789, right? The ratification of the Bill of Rights. Because you had to have a Christian background, an Enlightenment background, a history of persecution, voices like the Baptists who are powerful but not in charge, but powerful they have to be listened to. 
Um, and the exhaustion of a hundred, you know, of centuries of religious fighting and killing and imprisonment and martyrdom and the state constantly changing its mind on what they were going to uh, mandate and what they were going to permit and what they're going to ban. And, and so this miracle of a country that would be a democracy with religious liberty and no established religion, friendly to religion, but not coercing anybody to participate in religion. Um, that's what we got in the late 18th century. Of course, it was all flawed. Everything that human beings do is flawed, but that's what we got for, at that moment. And the Baptists played a key role in making that happen. But today, I think the vision that created that moment, the, the circumstances and the vision are both gone. And so you don't have people wandering around Pensacola, Florida, probably, or Birmingham, Alabama, um, thinking much about what what the backstory was that gave us the first amendment right they're thinking about other things abortion or trans or or homosexuality or uh you know biden is a demon because QAnon says so or whatever right um and and as the thesis in the book is that if they're sufficiently inflamed with negative reaction to social changes that they don't like some of them are willing to set aside democracy to to win this cultural struggle once and for all. That that's the plot of the Star Wars prequel quals right there. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> democracy. About that. Well, democracy. So in in the first three movies, the I I love that this is happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, the it's all the first three movies, right? But I had not, not put this together this way. Yeah. Right, it's about the collapse of democracy in the face of a um, of an external threat, yes. and the way and the way it works inside the Star Wars universe is that the big bad, who's going to be the emperor in the original three movies, he creates the crisis to put himself in power, and he uses his power to create this massive military apparatus to defeat the external threat, which was his. So as soon as he has all the power, he turns off democracy, makes himself the authoritarian, and then turns off the threat. And now he controls everything. And nicely, nicely described. Yeah, that's, and when he becomes, when he declares that it's the first galactic empire, the the Senate applauds because now they're safe. Yeah. Um. I I feel even more palpably right now here on December 19th a hunger on the part of a significant minority of the population for for an emperor red caesarism mm-hmm. a red caesarism yeah and you know it's also a series of contingencies um the sense that the democratic president is weak and old and uh, worries about the economy and um, sense that we can't we can't even pass budget legislation. The, the Congress isn't working. Somebody just needs to just crack some heads and make it make it happen. Right? Foreign policy challenges, um, immigration. Um, there's, I think, I fear 
that the circumstances may be setting up for for red caesarism to prevail but i feel that it is my responsibility and all of our responsibilities if we believe that christians should support democracy to make the case again and to remember why it was that christians turned away from every some christians turned away from every form of christian caesarism 400 years ago and the baptists did that um let me read you uh, a couple lines from this is honoring Stassen. Um, he said, um, this is what Baptists contributed to early democracy. Authoritarianism was abandoned on behalf of democracy. State authority of religious belief was abandoned on behalf of religious liberty. The establishment of a state religion was abandoned on behalf of religious disestablishment and free exercise of religion. Arbitrary government power was constrained on behalf of human rights protections. And the Baptists, the early Baptists and Anabaptists and Quakers and others, uh, congregationalists of all types, were, were right in the middle of helping to make that happen. Um, and we've managed to maintain that kind of governmental structure in the U.S. for 234 years. And I would like for there for it to continue a whole lot longer. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. So this great history of democracy in the Baptist church, what tools does it offer today's Baptists? Well, I talked towards the end of the chapter about um, the about the humble practice of local church democracy as a kind of a laboratory for democracy. Um, now, you and I both know that often local church democracy goes very wrong, right? But so does local church dictatorship too, mm -hmm. right? The all-powerful pastor who says this is how it's going to be. That's, you know, that's local church authoritarianism, right? But I write in the chapter about... Um, the, the way in which uh, a congregational church is founded with a vision of doing and being something special in the world for God. Um, that, and, I, and, I, and that it's not about, I just want to be left alone. It's not an individualist project. It's a collective. It's a communal project. Together, we create a community. And we draft a covenant to... Um, to describe what the what the rules and the vision of this community are going to be. Um, that's a constitutional exercise. Um, and ordinary people, the the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, get experience in governing themselves and leading committees and setting budgets and being held accountable and making arguments for what we should do. Um, uh, Many scholars are saying that we don't have very many institutions right now where people are learning how to do democracy. There just aren't very many. That's an interesting. That's an interesting point. What a neat gift. Yeah, like where would it be? You know, I mean. So, and and I, I think of my forty-six years of experience as a Baptist, all the different congregations that I've been been in, some of them functioning better than others, but the sense that. You know this, the sense that 
the humblest person in terms of their education or background is valued. They have a voice. Yep, they get their vote. They get their vote. If they want to speak up at a business meeting and say, hey, I think maybe we ought to consider doing this, they're going to be heard. Now, they might not win, but but they're going to have a voice. And in a healthy uh, congregational church, the habit of deliberation is practiced through regular conversations about budget and direction and strategic decision-making and stuff like that. Also, I talk about how, um, now this is, didn't always work out this way in all the churches, but the idea that the community calls the pastor mm-hmm. uh, and all other ministers, and the the ministers serve at the at the pleasure of the community, and they can impeach or remove a pastor and pick another one. So the community belongs to Christ, and operationally, the community belongs to the people. Not yeah, they should king. out the church outlives the pastor's tenure. That's right. Is yes. By the way, the megachurch paradigm doesn't often work this way right there's one charismatic figure who starts something and then maybe it doesn't survive after after or it goes to their son right we see that sort of pastoral nepotism that's family dynasties that's that's the old uh, you know family dynasty model right billy graham to franklin graham yeah that went great yeah um so the genius of the system the community exists over it can exist over hundreds of years practicing democracy peaceably most of the time um making decisions for the well-being of the community attempting to live according to the covenant and bylaws um which is basically like you know under the rule of law um and so any community in which we in which we function in this way is a gift and it's a place where we learn how to be you might say democrats we learn how to be people who can participate in democracy and and also the fact that in a democratic community you win some and you lose some uh you make an argument and if you're covenantally committed to the community you're you don't have to win every time right you'll stay anyway and you know how many things can go wrong but we also have to acknowledge how many times this actually functions pretty well so here's two democratic paradigms of church leadership that for centuries have taught ordinary people how to govern themselves and here's to the Baptist contribution to democracy, which said a political community should be seen as something like a covenantal community operating for the well-being of the whole. Everybody gets a voice and people's consciences are respected. I think that's not a bad paradigm. I wish it didn't sound so romantic. We have the potential to realize this in our local congregations. And we often do. Sometimes it goes wrong, but think, think about human beings. Everything human beings touch can go wrong, right? But 
But the, I mean, the argument in my book for democracy is not that democracy is an ideal or flawless political system. It's just less bad than every other alternative. Is that is that a Churchill quote? Yes, yes, it is. Um, I have I have that quote in the book. Um, the best of the available bad decisions, or something like that. He said it very like Churchillian. Um, Too many words and grumbly. Here's what he said. Here's where we end the session. Many forms. <laughs> many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Indeed, it has been said that democracy... <laughs> I... I... <laughs> Thank you, David, and thank you, Winston. And thank you, dear listener. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. We are glad to have you along on this. I'm having fun. I don't know if you can tell. I, David and I are enjoying this, and we hope you are too. Um, and I, I've been finding a lot of benefit in revisiting the concepts in because the book is so well organized. It's nice to circle back around on these subjects in a way that's a little looser helps me really lock it into my way of thinking so thank you for coming along on this journey and we will see you next time uh, as we continue this conversation specifically around the church and democracy in the united states so something to look forward to and we'll see you next time